is the Michael Medved Show. And another great day in this greatest nation on God's green earth. A great day where a great advancement, or at least so we thought, is under attack. What is that advancement? The advancement is the idea of uh, smartphones, cell phones, all kinds of phones, which of course are cherished particularly by teenagers. There has now been a big Washington Post editorial. It's an editorial board. They all got together and decided that schools should ban smartphones, period, uh, that parents should help. And uh, even if you have phones that are still available between classes at lunch and recess, it's problematic, according to education experts. So uh, is it proper to ban cell phones? What about the desire of parents to be in touch with their kids? Uh, we will talk about that with a member of the Washington Post editorial board who wrote this particular very controversial editorial. Christine Emba will be joining us. Uh, we'll also be speaking about the upsurge in anti-Semitism where you wouldn't expect it at city council meetings uh, from Greta Thunberg. Uh, wasn't she about to get the... Uh, man of the year, person of the year. It was actually climate activists in general who got, I think, that award. Uh, given the fact that uh, there isn't a great deal of connection between the agenda of Hamas and climate change, uh, what is Greta Thunberg doing with that? Blah, and then, blah, blah. Why and why is it that you have two different uh, city councils that uh, with nothing at all having to do with uh, issues that they could actually decide that have to do with crime and homelessness and more, but city councils that uh, gave over their time and their attention to anti-Semitic rants? Uh, there's also a response to those anti-Semitic rants by Chuck Schumer, the Senate Majority Leader, who claims that, and with some justification, that he is the uh, Jewish American in all of history who has held the highest ranking office as Senate Majority Leader, as leader of the U.S. Senate. Uh, yes, yes, we've had plenty of Jewish senators before. We've had Jewish members of the House, Jewish governors. Uh, we never had a Senate majority leader before Chuck Schumer. So what does he have to say? He uh, talks about the history of oppression and the claim by progressives that they want to help the oppressed. But that clearly doesn't include the people who were just released as hostages and are now talking a little bit about what that hostage situation felt like, meant, uh, what it really did uh, for the people who were held by Hamas. 1-800-955-1776 uh, is our phone number. And we will also get to uh, President Trump aiming a specific editorial at young people saying that he will make America great again for young people as well as for other Americans. Uh, meanwhile, the idea that there are 
uh, reasons that city governments should take positions on the Middle East. There was even an editorial in the Seattle Times uh, uh, questioning the idea that you had a couple of abstentions, but everybody else was unanimous. This is the uh, Seattle City Council, where it has been so outrageous and so far to the left and so out of touch with basic realities that um, most of the incumbent city council people either quit or they got voted out this time. This is a much more moderate city council. But the old city council that had just been uh, uh, voted largely out uh, ended up debating and then voting for a resolution demanding a ceasefire in the Middle East. And what a ceasefire means, not a, a long enough ceasefire, a temporary ceasefire so you can get the hostages out, but a ceasefire generally to stop the Israel in its purpose uh, of the war, which is to basically get rid of Hamas and the danger of another Hamas attack. Uh, this also became a subject uh, for discussion among the Oakland, California City Council and uh, uh, a fairly heated conversation there which sounded uh, like this when they opened up the question of a ceasefire in Gaza to public comment in the city of Oakland. This is clip 16. There's not been beheadings of babies and rapings. Israel murdered their own people on October 7th. Calling Hamas a terrorist organization is ridiculous, racist, and plays into genocidal propaganda that is flooding our media and that we should be doing everything possible to combat. I support the right of Palestinians to resist occupation, including through Hamas, the armed wing of the unified Palestinian resistance. As an Arab, asking with this context to condemn Hamas is very anti-Arab racist. The notion that this was a massacre of Jews is a fabricated narrative. Many of those killed on October Thank 7th, you, your time is up. including children, were killed by the IDF. An amendment condemning Hamas is bald propaganda meant to... Thank you. Your time is up. To hear them complain about Hamas violence is like listening to a wife beater complain when his wife finally stands up and fights back. Question. Did anyone else notice that those who oppose this resolution are old white supremacists? There's been a lot of atrocity propaganda ranging from claims of beheaded babies to mass rape. Hamas is not a terrorist organization just because the U.S. and Israel um, deems it so. Hamas is a resistance organization that is fighting for the liberation of Palestinian people and their land. Okay, uh, uh, honestly that it was actually Jewish people who killed their own people uh, to fake this, uh, this uh, kind of horror. I mean, again, this is 9-11 truthers have been around for a long time, but with this one, what's so different about it is nobody uh, ever announced to the world proudly, oh, we staged the uh, 9-11. Uh, 11 situation but the people who actually filmed their rapes and filmed their beheadings and filmed the murders and there is film of the dead bodies and the people who claimed it like that famous phone call he called home to his mommy and said you'd be so proud of me I killed 10 Jews with my bare hands 
the the idea that this is uh, beautiful and wonderful. And then here is uh, Greta Thunberg. Now, for those of you whose Swedish is not quite up to date, uh, what she is chanting outside the Israeli embassy in Stockholm is crush Zionism, crush Zionism. Uh, this is uh, Greta Thunberg, climate activist, getting into the act on a, on a completely different issue. This is clip five. Okay, that uh, was Greta Thunberg with a group of left-wing thugs outside the new NATO member, uh, Sweden. Uh, we will be talking coming up about uh, the use of cell phones and smartphones in schools. That and more coming up on The Medventure. How dare you? How dare you? And on the Michael Medved Show, uh, subscribe today to our new Substack newsletter, Michael Medved's Context, placing today's big events in the perspective of our past and our future. Uh, go to michaelmedved.substack.com. Sign up today for my uh, uncensored take on current controversies. And yes, there'll be a lot of controversy about my brand new piece, which we just posted this morning. Uh, the title is Uncomfortable Questions That Can Clarify Israel's History. And I begin by saying to gain a better perspective on the current conflict, advocates of the Palestinian cause should answer a few uncomfortable but unavoidable questions. Looking back on the long record of various civilizations that have occupied the currently disputed territory, when did the nation of Palestine first arise? Who were its most notable rulers, warriors, poets, prophets, statesmen, or builders? And by the way, if anybody has an answer to those questions, uh, you can uh, give a call, 1-800-955-1776. The, uh, we're talking about the Oakland City Council, and we played some of the comments that you heard uh, that were very extreme in their anti-Semitic leanings. And speaking about anti-Semitic leanings, before the final vote, which was unanimous, demanding a permanent ceasefire inside Gaza, uh, prior to the vote, the City Council voted 6-2 to two to reject one council member's amendment that sought to explicitly condemn Hamas terrorists for murdering and kidnapping innocent babies and uh, civilians. That was voted down. <laughs> and why would the Oakland City Council vote down that amendment? The amendment triggered a vitriolic response from pro-Palestinian protesters, many of whom openly expressed support for Hamas's terrorist attacks against Israel. A journalist named Yashir Ali, seems to be an Arab name, 
posted a video on X showing some of the most extreme responses that pro-Palestinian protesters engaged in, which included, of course, Holocaust denial. There have been no beheadings of babies, no rapings, the first woman in the video declared. Israel murdered their own people on October 7th. Oh, really? And then there's more here in the Seattle area, and it's incredible. Uh, north of Seattle is a, uh, a town called Linwood. Nice place to live, according to most sources. Then there are some people say that Linwood does have its darker side. Well, that darker side came out at a city council meeting. It was supposed to be a public hearing about the city's first property tax increase in two years. This at the Linwood City Council, and this reported by the Everett Herald. Uh, instead, there were three commenters who disrupted the meeting with a series of anti-Semitic and racist comments over Zoom. Isn't that great? And using this high-tech communication ability for such an uplifting purpose. Uh, it went on. The... Uh, uh, first speaker called for a city declaration condemning Israel's actions against Palestine before descending into a vulgar anti-Semitic rant. The uh, contributor nearly finished his allotted three minutes for public comment before Mayor Christine Frizzell told him to please clean up his language. Another speaker uh, rambled on about uh, anti-Jewish conspiracy theories. The mayor cut him off. Do you have any comments that are relevant to the city of Linwood? The third commenter shouted slurs when asked to keep his remarks relevant to Linwood. Um, Kohler's uh, disrupted a city council meeting in nearby Everett in a similar manner in September when they joined the meeting via Zoom to make racist and anti-Semitic remarks. Uh, it really, honest to goodness... This is uh, bizarre. And meanwhile, the, the Seattle City Council approved an amended resolution calling for a long-term ceasefire in Gaza, an immediate return of all hostages, and restorations of humanitarian aid. It also condemns rising anti-Semitism, Islamophobia, and anti-Palestinian Arab bigotry. What it doesn't do is condemn Hamas. Council President Deborah Juarez and Council Members Lisa Herbolt and Teresa Moscata put this Common Ground Amendment forward. It is in line with the demands being made by a large interfaith coalition and other community members who signed the Washington Solidarity Statement. Uh, the, uh, by the way, when people talk about a large interfaith coalition, this uh, interfaith coalition does not include uh, prominent spokespeople for the Jewish community. Yes, there are some people who use the term rabbi to refer to themselves, but in terms of the people who are leaders of congregations or leaders of the Jewish defense organizations or the various Jewish charitable organizations in the community, they weren't there. The amendment underscores the council support for the people of both Israel and Palestine. They claim to live in peace and security and the right of all people to live, learn, work, play, pray, and engage in peaceful protest without the threats of intimidation or death. Uh, 
I, I mean, uh, is this really, with with all of the challenges we have in Seattle, this is uh, very important? And then there's a comment of a an MP in the United Kingdom who, um, now I don't know if this is pro-Hamas or anti. Uh, he was compo- comparing Hamas to the squirrel world. Here's what he said, clip six. Orange red squirrel group full of fantastic volunteers who worked tirelessly to protect the future of the red squirrel species in my constituency of Stanford, and particularly in Mount Stewart. Uh, this organization uh, is led by the National Trust Mount uh, Stewart Ranger team. They are in constant contact with local animal owners to monitor red squirrels and eradicate any grey's adventure. Indeed, the very presence of grey squirrels, grey squirrels, are the Hamas of, of, of the squirrel world. Um, does the Honourable Member agree that there should be greater integration between DEFA and local red squirrel groups and development institutions to ensure that they have the means necessary to preserve and expand the red squirrel species throughout Northern Ireland? Okay, this is, he's from Northern Ireland. He's a Democrat Unionist Member of Parliament. But I don't understand the complexities between the grey squirrels and the red squirrels. I, I do understand that if people say, as he just did, that grey squirrels are the Hamas of the squirrel world, uh, well, that's, um, that's going to be deeply controversial to any people who like grey squirrels. Meanwhile, how do you like kids taking smartphones to school? The Washington Post just had a big editorial calling for banning smartphones altogether in public school campuses. We'll get to that issue with Christine Emba of the Washington Post board, editorial board, coming up on the Medway Show. And on the Michael Medved show, uh, there are a few issues that are so controversial, so jarring, uh, so offensive to some people that uh, it will even cause people to give a break to some of the anti-Semitic bile and toxin that is out there uh, concerning debates at city councils and local institutions about what uh, the policy should be in the Middle East. You can interrupt that to talk about the policy regarding smartphones. Uh, There was an editorial in the Washington Post. It is wildly controversial. The editorial uh, appeared a a few days ago and declared, in educational settings, smartphones have an almost entirely negative impact. Educators and students alike note that they can fuel cyberbullying and stifle meaningful in-person interaction. A 14-country study cited by UNESCO over at the UN found that the mere presence of a mobile phone nearby was enough to distract students from learning. So the answer, says the Washington Post editorial board, is to ban smartphones altogether. Uh, The author of this very provocative piece uh, and a member of the editorial board and a, uh, an opinion columnist for the Washington Post is Christine Emba, who's joined us on the show before. She is the author of Rethinking Sex, a Provocation. Uh, and uh, she grew up in Virginia. She holds an A.B. in public and international affairs from Princeton University. So, 
what has been, it's been a couple of days since this editorial first appeared, has there been a generally supportive attitude, uh, an angry attitude, or mixed from uh, your readers? Hi. Well, first of all, thanks for having me. Um, and yes, it has been a week of, of many responses. I would say that it's split between the two you describe. There is a whole chorus of you know teachers and education professionals especially, um, but also some parents who are saying, yes, in fact, the editorial board is you know 10 years behind on this, like they should have been banned a long time ago. And then the negative response still tends to come from parents, kind of the same parents who we were talking about in the piece, uh, parents who say, well, my kid needs to stay in contact with me. Uh, how dare you do this? This is it's very important that my child be able to call me if they have a problem, which is kind of the mindset we were arguing against. So basically, to get this straight, it, it, there are many, many places where they don't allow kids to bring out smartphones in class. But what you're saying is, first of all, that's very difficult to enforce when you have a whole class of 25 or 30 people. And uh, secondly, uh, there are also problems with people using smartphones at lunch or in the hallways or during potty breaks or wherever. What are the problems specifically with the non-classroom use of cell phones at other school settings? Yeah, so it's important to say, you know, that around 70% of public schools right now have some kind of policy ostensibly against, you know, school uh, phone use during instructional time. But exactly as you said, it's very difficult to enforce in a busy classroom. You can tell your students put their phone in their pocket and they'll just look at the phone under their desk. Um, and yes, teachers don't have time to keep track of everyone. But even when they do succeed in, you know, banning phones in the classroom, like asking students to put them, you know, in some sort of phone package at the beginning of class and pick it up afterwards. One of the things, um, one of the problems with smartphones in schools is how they detract from the learning environment and also are used in place of the sort of actual social connection, in-person connection uh, that students are meant to have or kind of warp it in certain ways. So you cited that statistic about how, you know, students and really everyone are very easily distracted by even the presence of a phone around them, even if they're not in contact with it. Uh, if it's not doing anything, they can't check their notifications. They're sort of still thinking about what's going on on the phone. And in schools that have tried to, you know, input these no phones in class bans, they find that students just at the end of class rush their phone spend all of their time in the hallway, like looking at their phone and catching up on notifications, spend lunch doing the same thing and are actually not talking to their classmates or having those social interactions that they're supposed to be learning as youth and adolescents. And then even worse in these off periods, uh, many teachers and administrators are reporting that phones are being used to, to ruin social interactions. So students use their phones and text that they're going to meet up to beat up another student. Uh, students are using their smartphones to film fights and then share them around with their classmates. So they're used for bullying during school hours and make those connections worse. And yeah, this might not be happening during the 45 minute period, but if this is happening every other 15 minutes, it's free. Uh, it's still corrupting the, the school environment.
So what do you say to those parents, and, and you acknowledge that this is the most common argument against your common sense editorial, uh, there are parents who, who say that, uh, um, that the kids need to have the smartphones so that they can stay in contact with their children to arrange pickups and drop-offs to keep track of their whereabouts or otherwise be in touch. And uh, you acknowledge that that's kind of a, a healthy response on the part of concerned parents. What do you say to them if you were go going to just ban bringing phones to school entirely? I would actually maybe say that that's not even that healthy a response. Um, I would say that the, the most defensible response from parents is thinking of a moment of crisis. Unfortunately, we have a crisis of school shootings or shooting threats, and parents have said, well, if there's an emergency like that, I want to be able to, to talk to my kid. One student we quoted, you know, said that, well, at the very least, I could say goodbye, you know, to my parents if something like that happened. And that does tug at the heartstrings. That said, you know, self-defense and safety experts in school systems say that actually you shouldn't have a phone in those moments because if you are hiding or trying to stay quiet, you need to be paying attention to the surroundings and also phones with their lights, their noises, people texting, give away where you are, which is a grim thing to think about, uh, but seems true. When it comes to the case of, you know, students and parents trying to arrange pickups and drop-offs and, you know, my students forgot their homework, how can I get it to them if they can't call me? I actually think that this should be an area where students are asked to develop their self-efficacy and their parents to develop that too. You know, if you don't have a cell phone in school and there's a real sort of emergency, you've left your medicine at home, Students are perfectly capable of going to the principal's office or the nurse's office, as I did many a time uh, in my school career, and calling their parents and waiting. Um, or finding other ways to, to figure things out. If you've forgotten assignment, maybe you've forgotten assignment and you've learned how to deal with that. You know, I think we talk a lot already about helicopter parenting and even what's called snowplow parenting, parents who are too involved in their uh, kids' lives and don't allow them to develop their own self-agency. And school is supposed to be a time for focusing on school, not texting so, your parents whenever you're nervous. <laughs> so it would how would this work? Would, uh, would kids be inspected or have their bags checked before you come to school to make sure you didn't have some somewhere st uh, stashed in a uh, purse or in a briefcase or anything, uh, the uh, demon's uh, smartphone. <laughs> so different schools have done this in different ways. A number have used these magnetically locking pouches, the kind that you usually use at like comedy shows where they turn in their phone and they get it back at the end of the day or lock it into a locker or lockbox. And usually most students don't have multiple phones. Um, although some can fudge the system. But generally, once the majority of students don't have their phone, it makes it easier for others to go along with it. Okay, this is a fascinating subject. I'm going to take the liberty of posting uh, your excellent editorial, with which I agree, uh, posting it at our website at michaelmedved.com. Christine Emba of The Washington Post. Look forward to speaking to you again on some of the other important issues of our time. And this is one. We'll be right back. Michael Medved. And 
the Michael Medved show, uh, there's uh, another city council, of course, that has taken up the responsibility of solving the uh, challenge of establishing peace between Israel and Hamas. Uh, this is the uh, Berkeley City Council, right next door to Oakland, where they had that uh, very spirited session. In Berkeley, uh, things got so raucous debating the Israel-Hamas war. This is last night. The council had to adjourn and then move to another room. The overwhelmingly pro-Palestinian crowd uh, cheered speakers on their side of the issue. Well, of course they did. And uh, but a pro-Israel speaker had trouble getting his message heard. Uh, one speaker said, so when you hear people bandy about terms like apartheid and genocide, you have to ask, how can this be? How can there be an apartheid government when Palestinians are part of the government? Said uh, that other speaker. When Mayor Jesse Araguin condemned the October 7th Hamas attack against Israel, there was strong pushback and lusty booing. Well, at the Berkeley City Council, uh, <laughs> just to raise your spirits even higher, uh, sounded uh, like this last night. It was on their side of the issue. Over 15,000 people, including 6,000 children, have been killed by the Israeli state since October 7th. But a pro-Israeli speaker. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, we want to hear what she has to say. Let's respect each other. Had trouble getting his message heard. So when you hear people bandy about statements of apartheid and genocide, you have to ask, how can this be? How can apartheid government? How can there be an apartheid government when Palestinians are part of the government? When Mayor Jesse Aragon condemned the October 7th Hamas attack against Israel, there was strong pushback. The past couple months, in response to Hamas's barbaric attack and the resulting massacre. The city council members left the room, then returned, but the reception was about the same. Council members left the chambers again, finishing the public comment session on Zoom calls in a quiet back room, but the message was pretty much the same. I urge Berkeley to be on the right side of history. Right. Okay, what is so urged Berkeley to be on the right side of history? Um... Uh, again, this this is a, a little bit crazy because uh, Brett Stevens made this point. Brett Stevens is going to be joining us again on the show. And he made the point that the people who are asking for a ceasefire are never asking for a Hamas ceasefire. In other words, uh, would or should Israel, if, if Hamas was able to give some kind of guarantee that we're going to put away our rockets, we're going to put away our weapons, we are not going to be firing anymore at Israeli civilians and at kindergartens and hospitals, yes, hospitals, and uh, old old age uh, uh, facilities for, for elderly people. If, if Hamas made a commitment that uh, as long as there are no further Israeli incursions into Gaza, as long as uh, Israel agrees not to invade Gaza or to aim uh, air aerial attacks or other missiles at our territory, we won't do anything. 
In other words, where you have a real mutual ceasefire. But Hamas won't say that. The public statements they have issued since before the Israeli invasion were regardless of what the Israelis do, regardless of how many people get to be, quote, martyrs, uh, we are going to keep staging events like October 7th, which they viewed as a glorious victory. No matter how hideously cruel their treatment was of some of the children who have now been released and are talking about it, uh, forcing them, in some cases, to watch video of uh, their parents, yes, parents, and grandparents, and neighbors being killed. Now, they just saw it in real time. Now they're forced to watch it again and again. And uh, look, the the level of cruelty and depravity on Hamas makes it unthinkable that that these morons, these useful idiots, as Lenin used to call them, that these useful idiots are focusing on everything that is going on in the Middle East as if uh, there is only one side, and it's Israel. It's all the fault of Israel. For instance, there has been a great circulation by uh, an emotional and actorly statement by actress Cynthia Nixon. Once upon a time, she ran for governor of New York. Uh, she uh, says uh, that uh, somehow what is going on is equivalent to the Holocaust. Really? Uh, here is Cynthia Nixon. As the mother of Jewish children whose grandparents are Holocaust survivors, I have been asked by my son to use any voice I have to affirm as loudly as possible that never again means never again for everyone. And then she adds, In seven weeks, Israel has killed more civilians on a tiny strip of land than was killed in 20 years of war in the entire country of Afghanistan. I am sick and tired of people explaining this away by saying that civilian casualties are a routine toll of war. There is nothing routine about these figures. There is nothing routine about these deaths. I would like to make a personal plea to a president who has himself experienced such devastating personal loss to connect with that empathy for which he is so well known and to look at the children of Gaza and imagine that they were his children. Okay, this is very, very important. Uh, the, the name of our Substack column series is of context this is context uh, on october 7th this is abc news an estimated 2200 rockets were fired that one day towards southern and central israel including tel aviv and jerusalem by the hamas militants uh, according to the israel defense forces since that time there have been 9500 rockets fired at Israel since October 7th, including 3,000 in the first hours of the onslaught. Now, think about this. If we were fired upon by Canada or Mexico right next door, 
a neighboring a neighboring country that was firing multiple rockets that uh, and and then sending at least 2000 armed men across the border to kidnap people, rape people, to ransack their homes, to destroy their homes and to and to, to murder them at least 1200 I mean, think about what the U.S. response would be. And the the problem with all of this focus on a ceasefire is that there is no offer on the table from Hamas or any of its apologists about how to implement that ceasefire for the long term. Uh, because they have said, and they've been very clear about this, Whatever break we have, we are going to use to rearm to prepare for the next attack. And by the way, this is not a question of uh, Israel saying, well, we, we must destroy Hamas, and Hamas saying, no, we want to live. This is a question of Hamas in its charter demanding not borders here or borders there, not demanding getting the uh, Israeli army out of Gaza. It's been out of Gaza for nearly 20 years, for 18 years, since 2005. There's been no Jewish presence in Gaza. Right now, it's not that they want to kill Jews who are occupying Palestinian land. It's that they want to kill Jews who are living in the Jewish homeland of Israel, internationally recognized, which has fought for its independence and fought for its ability to live in peace together with its 20% Palestinian citizens, voters, and neighbors. <laughs>